session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Afternoon, welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 3104410555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, our studio number 3104410555. So I'm going to do uh, the book of the week today because on Monday's show, I had a very special guest, Katone Vahdani. I hope you tuned in. If you didn't, you can hear that uh, podcast on my podcast. But she talked about her life story, which was quite um, inspiring and very moving, and also her book, Cat and Juju, which is a kid's book, but also she's working on a feature animated film with Netflix, which you should look out for. So a big thank you again to her, Katone Vahdani, for joining me on Monday night's show. So let's get to the books. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is Rebel Talent by Francesca Gino. Rebel Talent, Why It Pays to Break the Rules at Work and in Life. And so, you know, at the top of the show, I do say suggest topics or books for the program, and people very frequently do. And here I'm a little embarrassed to say that someone recommended this book to me, but I can't remember who. So if it was you, please, when I post this today or tomorrow, um, comment or message me. Because when they had recommended the book a while ago, I tried to find it online and it was sold out, and then... I found it again later, but I couldn't find in my messages who had recommended it. So thank you to whoever that was, but uh, let me know if you are listening. Rebel Talent by Francesca Gino. I'll talk about it on Monday's show next week. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about today is This Is Your Mind on Plants by Michael Pollan. Uh, And you might remember a few years ago, I discussed his book, How to Change Your Mind. In that book, Michael Pollan was delving into the world of psychedelics and even he uh, tried or experienced I think it was three of them and shared his experiences which were in some ways interesting even funny at times uh, but there is a big movement in I guess you can say the world of psychedelic medications or plants being used in treatments for different disorders from depression to even PTSD issues between couples Uh, And there is a rebranding, you could say, in the sense that not that someone's really branding it, but the image and the reputation has been changing from something that, because of what happened in the 60s and 70s, was looked at as something so negative and something we had to get rid of, to seeing that there could be some benefits. And like anything in life, especially anything that we ingest, it's about the setting, the dose, why you're taking it, so many other factors. But most things are not all good or all bad and so in that book it was specifically about psychedelic uh, uh, not just plants because it also included things like lsd but uh, this book included a psychedelic so essentially is three different sections Uh, the first section is on opium the second on caffeine 
And the third is on mescaline, which can be found in peyote or the San Pedro cactus plant. And as he discusses, and even the title of the book itself, This Is Your Mind on Plants, it remi might remind some of you people who were around in the, I think it was the 80s in the United States, there was this anti-drug commercial that would show an egg and say, this is your brain, and then they would start frying the, they would crack the egg and fry it in the frying pan, and then when it's, you know, frying and, and bubbling and all that, they'd say, this is your brain on drugs. Any questions? And so I, I do have questions. I don't know if drugs make your brain more tasty, um, but whatever the reason is that they did that was basically to say it's going to mess your brain up completely. And so when we look at these three different plants, it does beg the question of, well, what makes something a drug? And in that sense, what makes something bad when we talk about drugs? Because we have this connotation that certain things are drugs and they're all bad and we should avoid them. But there's other things that might be similar that we don't think of as bad. So as he says, when we look at um, the three drugs or the three chemicals he's looking at essentially in this book, opium, um, it's illegal, especially if you're getting it from a poppy, but it can be very legal if you get it from your doctor, even in amounts that has caused many, many deaths and ruined many lives here in the United States. Caffeine and tea, well, that, or coffee and tea, which have, have caffeine, is very, very legal. And then uh, mescaline, peyote and San Pedro is actually the San Pedro cacti. That's illegal also, unless you're a member of the Native American tribe, because it's been included as part of their religious ceremonies so they actually can legally have and take it and so this we might think it's very clear what makes something good and bad what makes something a drug but i thought about this myself even before i read this book especially about coffee because i've seen it in my own experience if i haven't had coffee and it gets to later in the day afternoon i can see a difference in my mood or even in the morning sometimes before i've had it and once i've had it so if we use the definition or the descriptor which is sometimes used to define a drug or describe a drug that's it's something that changes your consciousness in some way or alters your mood well then certainly coffee caffeine would fall into that definition i would definitely see that it makes me more alert it changes my mood it makes me feel different than i did before i had it so we can see that the line between drug and not drug is very very blurry Another one we tend to use, whether we realize it or not, is if it's legal or illegal. Because, oh, those are the drugs, the bad ones. But these legal ones are okay. And so in my own lifetime, I've seen this interesting dynamic when you look at something like drug, uh, marijuana, and alcohol, where alcohol was legal uh, because I was not born in the Prohibition my whole life. And marijuana was illegal, and even still its legal status has some fuzziness because of state laws and federal laws. My friend um, Sina, who is a lawyer, he can explain that to me and to you much better than I can. Uh, but there still is some fuzziness there. But nonetheless, uh, its legal status has definitely changed. And you also can see that people's public perception here in the United States definitely has changed about that, the more general public. There were some people that always were okay with it, but it's definitely become more okay. And so I work with a lot of families, and still, though, there is the sense that marijuana is this drug, but alcohol isn't. So I could be surprised, or it's, it's puzzling to hear someone say, I'm so worried my kid is doing drugs, they're, they're smoking marijuana, but they themselves drink lots of alcohol on a regular basis, and somehow that's okay. 
but marijuana, or as sometimes uh, you know a Persian parent might say, he's smoking veeds. When they're doing that, somehow that's something really, really bad and scary, and we have to, um, you know, stop that. So it's not that I'm promoting smoking marijuana, especially in teenage years where it can have an effect on the brain. But nonetheless, the ways we make these distinctions, I think when we really recognize it and, and look at the full picture, we see that it's often arbitrary, that the way we draw these lines of drug, not drug, legal, illegal, is really not based on something very clean and obvious. And sometimes it's even comical. And so in the book, he talks about opium. That's the first one. And it's actually, he gives a a preface about that section, but the article he shares is from the 90s. And so the 90s was when the war on drugs was, had already been a few decades in, but it was still very much in in the strong uh, force. And so there was this interesting dynamic where he, he likes to garden and he's written lots of books about gardening and plants and food and things like that. And so he was a gardener and a writer back then as well. And he wanted to have poppies, and he did, in his garden. But there was this very strange changes in the law that were happening that were unclear. And he describes his exploration of trying to really get a handle of what the law was and if he could be in trouble for something or not. But it was something along the lines that you could grow the poppy flower that could make opium from it for some time unless you knew that you can make opium from it. So it was a very strange type of a law or fuzziness in the understanding of if you were doing something but you didn't know, you were okay. But as soon as you somehow showed you knew, you can get in trouble. And so he himself was getting into some legal trouble or at least potential trouble, and he had to even consult lawyers, which he talks about, that as he wrote this article, he was, of course, expressing he knew that you could make opium from these poppies. Uh, So he no longer could say, I didn't know. And it wasn't clear if he would be protected by the law because he's a journalist, because he's doing it for some other reason or First Amendment rights. It wasn't quite clear whether or not he would actually be able to publish this and be okay and feel safe. And so because of that, he actually had taken out a huge chunk of the article when he talks about actually making some poppy tea, which is essentially like having some opium. Um, because he consulted with some lawyers, and even the lawyers, he talked to two different ones, and they gave him some conflicting answers, one saying that he would almost definitely be okay, even if he published this article saying that he grew the poppies in his garden and and ingested them. Uh, Another one saying it's not so clear, you actually might be in trouble, and I think it was like up to a million-dollar fine, and he might have to go to jail. So he took out a big chunk of it, which he then included in the book now, that the statute of limitations had run out and he talked to more lawyers to make sure um, that he would be okay. And so it's it's interesting because as he says around that same time, now he can say this, he didn't know, uh, but um, there was companies and Purdue Pharma is this huge one that was making and starting to make billions of dollars using opium make you know oxycontin and making other drugs like that that they were basically legal to sell but he as a gardener having some poppy flowers in his garden could have been arrested which really again it points to the absurdity of the laws that we have surrounding certain things like drugs that you might think it makes sense and even sometimes that's what people say well it's legal or it's illegal and we know that 
throughout history, things that have been legal and illegal often have turned out to be hugely immoral and wrong. And so we don't want to use that as our indicator of what's right and wrong. It has some value, but it's not shouldn't be our value or the ultimate value. And so it was a really sad thing to read as well, to hear him talking about his experience and the experiences of others who are just gardeners ra- raising these plants in their garden, um, whereas companies were making billions of dollars off of it and ruining so many lives because they made it more potent. So it is something when you talk about this is your brain and this is your brain on drugs, it's also uh, this is our brain on how we think about drugs. And we have to realize that sometimes it's very misguided the ways that we think we understand and we know something is good or bad, but those lines become much more blurry when you actually take a look at it and see, well, how is that okay for companies to make billions and know that this is addictive? while other people can get in trouble for that same thing. We've also seen things like that with marijuana and other things as well in this country. Now, after the break, I want to continue on the book because I just started the part on opium, but there's also the sections on caffeine and mescaline. Again, the book is This Is Your Mind on Plants by Michael Pollan. We'll be right back. back continuing the discussion on the book this is your mind on plants by michael pollan and so in the first section as i mentioned he discusses opium which um as he found he could somehow be able to get himself by raising these poppy flowers but he also could get in trouble in a very unclear way if he showed that he knew that what he was growing could be used in that that way now so he actually eventually did drink tea from it and he describes his experience in it and and using it and he also you know as i should mention this uh, as much as he's saying the way we look at drugs can be really wrong and misguided the war on drugs can be very uh, has been a spectacular failure by all accounts Um, he also acknowledges that drugs of course have caused a lot of pain and suffering so it's one of those things that it's hard to tease apart in some ways in our minds but there's a difference between drugs and drug addiction of course you can't have drug addiction without drugs but we really can't have a world without drugs they're they really are even growing and they are easy to make so we can't just think that the goal is going to be if we erase all drugs we're going to have no problems i think drug addiction is something very complicated and complex and involves lots of aspects of society of individuals of how we are as communities as how we've gone away from uh, our natural way of doing things as far as the sense of belonging and, and togetherness that we used to have in our ancestral environment which our brains are adapted to um, but solving it is not going to just be getting rid of all the drugs we have to look at what we can do to make those things better and unfortunately sometimes the war on drugs was thinking that we can somehow eliminate the, you know, all the drugs or eliminate the users um, and somehow punishing them. And we have so many people in jail in the United States who really had an illness. We have lots of people in jail in the United States who have mental illness, but also we're dealing with addiction. And it wasn't that they were trying to harm society in some way. Really, they were suffering and needed help. And also society itself was sick and not okay. So, yes, drugs are not something that we should just take lightly and that it's always good and there isn't something bad about it. But we have to be aware of uh, what really is going on. And also criminalizing it creates 
lots more problems than it tends to solve. And so uh, I would have to think more. I've thought about this topic of decriminalizing all drugs. I do think there is um, value in that. I think that could be the best solution. Doesn't mean making it readily available to everyone all the time. And there's things we'd have to restrict, especially when it comes to children, vulnerable people, things like that. But it does appear to me that we don't eliminate the problem by making this type of a war on drugs mentality. And the criminalization of it, first of all, gets people in trouble. It also creates things like black markets and people have to go through really horrible means to keep feeding their addictions. And it's hard to even get help. And it, all those types of factors, I think, lead to more suffering than good. So it's not that I'm pro-drugs. I'm someone who actually doesn't consume any. But I don't think that criminalizing them is helpful. And I think movements towards decriminalizing and understanding how to do that in a wise type of a way that's good for society might make more sense down the line. Nonetheless, coming back to the book, um, so that was about an illegal drug. Again, illegal if you try to obtain it in many ways, like heroin or the poppies can be uh, that way as well, but very legal if your doctor prescribes you Oxycontin and you can take that as much as you want and it's completely legal and people will make lots of money off of it. Um, the second section is about caffeine. And so it's interesting because in the opium and mescaline um, sections, he took the drug, so it's experiential in that way. In the caffeine chapter, because he was already a caffeine addict, having it at least in the morning, and then a lot of times in the afternoon, maybe a tea, so a coffee in the morning, tea, or but at least some type of caffeine every day, what he actually did was he went three months without coffee. And I had an experience like that, uh, I think it was maybe three, four years ago. Um, Amir here, who I do the shows with Monday, he was doing some type of a diet and, you know, I won't get into the diet itself, but it also involved not having caffeine for those two weeks. And so I said I, I would try it. And when I did that, it was pretty tough. I'm someone who has at least one, really two every day. There was sometimes I was having three coffees, which now I, I don't really do. But um, so stopping and having zero was very hard. And we sometimes forget how dependent we are on something until it's taken away. I remember the first couple of days I felt like a zombie. I felt so tired and not like myself. I remember I would sometimes see clients and then have like an hour break and just fall asleep on the couch because I, I couldn't keep myself awake. Um, so it was very challenging, but he describes that even in those three months that he did it, he still felt like something was missing. I, after that, didn't drink coffee for almost a year, which is quite remarkable for me now because I still have it every day. So I, I did soon go back to that after that. Um, but I didn't feel like there was a lack of sharpness that I had, at least that's how I remember it. And, and again, it was for several months, I think about a year. So nonetheless, he describes that experience of he himself really trying to see, okay, if I want to understand this molecule and how it affects me, maybe it'll make sense for me to not actually have it to see how I'm affected by it. And then he describes how he went back to using again after three months. And I guess using is a good term. We use that with more uh, illicit drugs, but again, that line is blurry. And when he went back, he describes that experience of how sharp he felt, but then also he felt a little bit almost wired in a way like it was too much. He was overwhelmed. Um, and then he also recognized he quickly went back to addiction mode 
and the addiction mindset kicked in where he was trying to get another cup, even though he said he'd have just one. And, and anyway, so he explains that. He also, uh, interestingly, goes through the history of caffeine and how coffee and tea, of course, weren't always part of our lives and started and were grown only in some parts of the world, but soon now have spread to be grown in so many places and really is the most uh, common type of plant, especially psychoactive plant that that is exists in the world are coffee and tea. I don't know which one there's more of, uh, but he shares the history, even things like the coffee break. So uh, some companies, and I, I forgot the first company, I think it was a neckwear company that made it official, but they saw that their workers would work much faster if they had coffee than if they didn't. And so they instituted what became very commonly the coffee break, which is a paid break where you would drink coffee. I think initially they had to pay for their own coffee, but then it was provided for them. So they were paid for that time of work and also received the coffee. And it was good for the company because their workers had more energy, could work harder and faster and for more hours. And so it became part of uh, the working culture. And so as he describes, we can see that the drugs that tend to become illegal alter consciousness, usually in some more, what might be dramatic ways, but also tend to be less beneficial for the functioning of a smooth society or what we, we think society is looking for. So if there's a drug that makes you want to work harder, be more focused, have more energy, well, that's part of capitalist society that wants things to be that way. That fits really nicely. Why would we stop people from having coffee? But if there are caffeine, but if there's a drug that makes people more reflective or want to check out or question things like psychedelics might do, well, then it might look like more of a threat, which when I get to that, that section, I can talk a bit about that as well. So it's interesting seeing how coffee had a different trajectory than other psychoactive plants. But even still, there were periods of time where people tried to ban or outlaw and have prohibitions on coffee. Uh, coffee houses, I believe, was especially in England, started becoming these places where men would gather and talk about all sorts of ideas, you know, philosophies. And at times, governments and monarchs felt threatened that people would, you know, stir up revolutions there, that sedition, people would come up with ideas to challenge and question the people in power. So they tried to at times suppress them, get rid of them, but never were successful uh, to get rid of caffeine. So that was kind of interesting to see that the coffee house, which seems like this really pleasant thing, it didn't always have that type of uh, a vision, or at least for some people, it even was seen as a threat to those who were in power. It might empower the people, bring them together. So they tried to get rid of them. So that was an interesting section to learn about how coffee spread throughout the world and how it was at sometimes even smuggled out uh, I think from somewhere I think it was it mocha but nonetheless that it had to spread into Europe and eventually the rest of the world and now it, again it's the most common psychoactive plant that we have and reading about his experience not drinking it and then drinking it again I definitely could relate to that because I did go about a year and I did feel okay but once I did it was slowly I was like okay just as a treat I would have it and then it became more often and more often and then slowly it's gone back to a everyday thing and one thing about coffee that's important to keep in mind is now i've had situations where i drank coffee and i couldn't fall asleep which is horrible 
But even if you do fall asleep, what seems to be very clear is that the quality of your sleep and how deep your sleep is will be affected. Uh, especially if you've had coffee, even in the last 12 hours or so, I think the quarter life, so basically it means a quarter of an, the amount of caffeine is still in your body about 12 hours after you have it. So if you have a coffee at noon, at midnight, still about 25% of that is going to be in your body. And so that is going to affect your sleep in a negative way. And so many sleep researchers that he even interviewed won't drink caffeine at all or won't have any caffeine at all because of that because they've seen the dramatic negative effects it can have on our sleep so uh, i'm sure a lot of people hearing that might be feeling what i'm feeling which is like well uh, maybe it's still worth it or maybe it's not affecting me uh, or as i said people say oh i fall asleep even right after i have a cup of coffee but that doesn't mean it's not affecting the quality of your sleep even if the quantity is there you fall asleep okay so that was that second section which was on caffeine and the third section was on mescaline which is found in the uh, the plants uh, peyote and the san pedro cacti and so this is a more psychedelic uh, and in, in the book how to change your mind he didn't take mescaline but he took other psychedelics so he describes his experience and how actually challenging it was to obtain the drug and as I mentioned in the previous segment, psychedelics are having a type of a revival in recent years, uh, recent decade plus. In the 60s or 70s, it became a big revolution, and Timothy Leary was one of the leaders of the psychedelic movement. And actually in that book, How to Change Your Mind, he outlines that history, Michael Pollan, very well and in detail. But it was seen as a threat, and even so much so that Richard Nixon at one point called Timothy Leary the most dangerous man in America because the fear was that people would take the psychedelics and it would make them question and challenge lots of things, including things like fighting a war or wanting to die for your country. Um, and because of that, people will uh, were concerned. So there was a, a kind of, a, I think it was a book he had, Timothy Leary, but also this phrase, turn on, tune in, drop out, about taking psychedelics which basically was very much seen as counterculture, counter doing what society wants you to do. And so as a result, uh, psychedelics were seen as this really horrible thing, made very illegal and outlawed, even though they're far less addictive, especially to something like caffeine, uh, but even to other drugs that are legal and are okay. Uh, but because of this threat that was seen, psychedelics, and I remember my own image of psychedelics was as these horrible things that are just going to ruin your mind and and just just make you go crazy and of course things can happen if you take things especially if you take things that are uh, chemically manufactured in laboratories sometimes they might put things that are not good uh, you know not healthy for you um, but the real what we're seeing with psychedelics is that they are not this dangerous thing so public perception is of course often created by those in power and those who might have an agenda and it's hard to shake that still i have this feeling about psychedelics it's been changing as i'm reading more about them seeing research about them understanding it better but there's it's still tainted by those years that i was hearing things very different that it is something so dangerous and scary um, and so he does talk about his experience and especially especially with mescaline here in the united states it is illegal but if you're a member of a Native American tribe, you can have it because it's part of your First Amendment religious uh, rights 
that you can have it for the ceremonies that they have. And, and he talks about his experience of trying to observe one of these ceremonies and take part in one of these ceremonies, but that it was challenging because, as is understandable, many Native Americans can feel threatened or feel uh, not a discomfort of allowing someone into their um, rituals or their ceremonies because of what they've experienced in the United States. But eventually he was able to find his way into one, and he describes drinking this tea, which was made from the plant uh, that had mescaline in it, and his uh, psychedelic or his, his trip, as they call it, experience, um, he describes that as well. And so that was that was interesting to see what he went through and how it actually compared to what I read in his experiences of other psychedelics. But what people tend to experience often in many psychedelics is more connected to the world. And it's kind of an interesting thing because some of what might be happening is the, the self might dissolve a bit in the sense that how strongly you see yourself as this entity separate from the rest of the world, not just people, but the whole universe. And it could be, a, 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 you know, he talks about sometimes it was almost overwhelming having so much of an experience, almost like he was seeing everything too much. Um, but p people often have a very beautiful experience of feeling more at one with the world. And what's interesting is we talk about psychedelics and you might think it makes you hallucinate or have delusions, but it's not clear that the way we see ourselves as so separate from the universe actually is the truth and is the reality. There are many writers, psychologists who will talk about how the self, the sense of self that we have, might be a type of illusion that has been created. Now we know that natural selection doesn't think, but that it makes sense that something like this could be selected for because it makes us even more likely to want to preserve ourselves and to pass on our genes in such a strong way because me is so important. I am so important that and I'm so separate from everyone else that I have to fight so much to make sure I'm okay and to make sure I pass on my genes because that would make sense from an evolutionary perspective. But is that really the reality that I'm so separate? So the sense of self might not necessarily be so much reality. And so when we think we're hallucinating, it doesn't necessarily mean or when we have these experiences of feeling so at one with the universe, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's wrong and what we tend to believe is right, because we know that our sense of perception, it's not that it's supposed to make us see the world in reality. It's supposed to make it so that we survive, which means that sometimes we don't see the reality because it might be beneficial for us. So it just might be that when we're taking a psychedelic, it's not what we're used to or what is the shared reality that most people have most of the time. But it doesn't even mean that it's a disreality or not reality in, in some way. So I think that's kind of interesting as well. So psychedelics is a, a line of research, or I should say a line of research is being done and seeing how psychedelics might be very useful in many things. Already it's being used in things like end of life and making people's transition uh, much more comfortable and even reducing their death anxiety, sometimes even to zero. Um, but there's many benefits that can be there. And so it's not that like anything in this book or anything in general, that they're all good, but they're definitely not all bad either. And I think it's important to view everything with the understanding that if it's in the right dose, and as we talk about in psychedelic um, experiences, the right set and setting, it actually might be beneficial. And we have to be aware of the 
preconceived ideas we have about things that come from what we've heard over years about what's good and bad, legal and illegal, and what makes it right and wrong. And because of that, we already have our judgments. Try to put those judgments aside and look at the evidence the best way that we can. And so in this book, This Is Your Mind on Plants, I thought Michael Pollan uh, was able to do just that in making us think a bit about these different chemicals, opium, caffeine, mescaline, but in general, what we consider drugs, what we consider safe, what makes something legal, illegal, good, bad, uh, and seeing that usually it's a lot more gray than black and white. Let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to a caller now. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Hello, yes. Thanks for calling. Okay. Dr. Halakwe. Yes. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? (laughs) Okay. Murphy's Law, right now the phone is ringing, so I don't know. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, I was just listening to your analogy of this book, mm-hmm. and I was, uh, I, two things came to my mind. One was that, you know, we all know caffeine and alcohol is not good for you. And, of course, you know, Mormons already don't have any caffeine served in their schools, in their campus but what do you say when you say caffeine is not good for you what do you i mean it's not necessarily not good for you well it's uh it's having side effects like that you can't sleep properly yeah it can have some you know but also there's uh, and i didn't talk about this um but you know he mentions in the book antioxidants and there's some things that have that are are beneficial and uh, you know i think the amount you take and how you take it can have uh, you know should be looked at but i wouldn't say that to say caffeine is bad that was something i wanted to make a point of when i talked about the book it, i wouldn't agree with that to say it's just bad okay i i think it's bad because okay. uh, of the effects but i just have one cup of coffee every morning and that's it and not more than that mm-hmm. uh, so in moderation uh, everything's good to me mm-hmm. But I was um, thinking, you know, the way it's advertised, like alcohol, that is definitely not good for you or not uh, good for, and it comes from a plant. It comes from grapes or something. Well, alcohol, I think it's fermenting. Yeah, the chemical process when something is fermented, which I don't completely understand, but I think you can make it from, right, most plants um, you can make Mm -hmm. it from. Even wood. You can make whiskey from wood, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know. But it's all, it's not plant-oriented. I mean, in the end, it comes from plants, right? Yeah. So, I'm saying, you know, some advertisements or the way it's uh, in the society, it's um, portrayed. People think uh, it's good for you or you're chic to do that. And uh, it, it, it is sad that uh, we're, we're doing that to ourselves through propaganda. Yeah. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you about alcohol. I think, um, you know, you know, I know some things with red wine. It can have some things that are, I forgot what's called, resveratrol or something. But nonetheless, it's something that, as I was mentioning about comparing it to marijuana, it's so accepted as okay and have it. It's not a problem. But to me, it's actually very harmful. And yeah, in moderation, I, I could see that someone says we all do harmful things, but it is much more, as you're saying, accepted and advertised as something cool or fancy or nice, but it, it can be very harmful. 
um, and the image can be made that it's something good when it is quite harmful. Guess what? I had another great point, but I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> when you were talking, I had this, uh, when I was, you know, listening to part of it, uh, it came to me that, uh, oh, yeah, the Indians. Okay. Why? I mean, don't you think it's a lot of discrimination against the rest of us? I mean, not that this is good or bad. It's just discrimination that they can use it because it's in their ceremony as opposed to the rest of us because we are not Indians or we don't have that religion. And it's forbidden for us. It's like, you know, double standard. To a degree, uh, I can see what you're saying. The Just having a distinction where if you're a member of a certain ethnicity or race, you can take this or can't take something, does have that sense uh, of discrimination. Now, it's because it's part of their religious ceremony that it's looked at that way. Also, the plant itself or the plants that give us mescaline are not very plentiful and the ways they're grown make it so that if everyone used it there might not be enough of them so it's it's a complicated issue i also think part of where it comes from is that the treatment of native americans has been so horrible in the united states beyond um you know belief when you look at what happens and i think most even i know i don't know a lot of the history i hear parts of it but i know there's so much more and when we look at american history and how it's taught it it really undermines or sweeps under the rug the atrocities that have been committed uh, towards the Native Americans. I think in some ways there's a sense of trying to, it doesn't make up for it, but there are small ways of trying to do that. So, um, you know, even citizenship-wise, uh, Native Americans have like a, sometimes a extra type of status, not just American citizens, but they also have this, uh, I don't know exactly remember the terminology or the phrasing of it, but because of their reservations, they have some citizenship there as well, or some kind of nationhood. So I think there could be some of that, uh, but I think, you know, because it's part of a religious ceremony, it's considered something that they can take as in that kind of a way. Um, so it has some, I see what you're saying of the discrimination. I don't see it as something severe, but I think it more points to actually how harshly we have dealt with the American Indians and also um, something that I don't think it needs to necessarily be outlawed, period. I don't I don't think it's that we shouldn't allow for Native Americans to take it, but I think outlawing to uh, the rest it doesn't make sense, as long as we also make sure, because he talks about in the book, there are movements or organizations trying to preserve peyote or these types of cactus that they get these, these uh, you know, the compounds from because they can be taken over and they could run out which would not be good, obviously. It could actually become an endangered species, you know, and even some people are on board with that, some people aren't, but anyway. So there's also those factors as well that if everyone could take it, there might not be enough for those Native Americans who are using it as part of their religious ceremonies and rituals. I mean, I'm all for using all of these things for medical, uh, medicine type of usage, you know? Mm-hmm pharmaceutical but uh, uh, I, I don't think uh, I mean we should not be uh, everybody should be treated equal and um, I mean there are a lot of discriminations everywhere mm-hmm. you know some groups are being uh, 
treated differently, so that part we should change, but uh, I didn't mean to, like, take away whatever we gave them, but it is not maybe safe practice either. So all of these things came to my mind I wanted to share with you, and you're not on Instagram anymore, are you? I am on Instagram. I'm not doing the Instagram lives, if that's what you mean. Live, yeah. Yeah. Be, uh, partially, it's because in the studio it gets too hot, and, and so when I have the light in my face and those things, so it's more logistical issues that uh-huh. made me stop that. I might start again at some at some point. You know, but something Clubhouse you s- was good. We could okay. back and forth talk about. That. Yeah, that I I've, I discontinued. I might start again as well. But one thing I'll mention: you said it's good if it's in you know medicinal ways. That makes it more okay. And I get what you're saying but in a lot of ways what we use as medicines are the same and we think it's maybe more controlled but it necessarily isn't so the way opium has been used in the pharmaceutical company completely legally although now there's been some lawsuits and things that have happened for companies like Purdue Pharma um, you know that's another point I was trying to make is that being aware that we might think well if it's done by doctors or it's done by you know some legal way that makes it okay but often our laws are very off and not clear and some of these drugs are not harmful the way they might be presented like things like uh, this mescaline, it, it really is not harmful, and the way it's used is, is not harmful. Um, and we really want to be aware of that and the biases we might have based on things. I, I feel I've always felt the same way too. Well, it's like, well, if it's pharmaceutical, then it's good. Uh, but really, that line I think is much more blurry when you take a closer look at it. Yeah, I'm just for one thing, which is morphine is good when cancer sure. patients have a lot of pain in the end. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Can be used. I mean, I mean, that's a thing. Those yeah. type of things, not right. you know, ordinarily. I mean, all the young people have access to it. No, right. But and that—that's the thing is that you know, um, the setting and the reasons and the intention. Uh, that's why it's we don't want to just look at these things as all good or bad, black and white, o- right. always good, always bad. You're right. People that are at the end of life when they really can't do anything else, and if we can make their experience more comfortable. To me, it totally makes sense, uh, and it would be really um, inhumane to, let's say, take we're going to take away, you know, opium is all bad or morphine is all bad, so we have to get rid of it. I think that would be really harmful, while at the same time, it can, in another person's hands, as you were saying, a younger person, let's say, or someone who then gets addicted, it could take away their life. And so these things are always going to be very complex. It's nice to look for a black and white to say it's all good, all bad eliminate it completely, give it to everyone all the time. But usually most things are not going to be that easy. And that's why we have to continue the discussion, continue our understanding to see how to make it where we get the benefits, reduce the harms and make it fair to everyone. Thanks a lot, Dr. Farid Alakui. Thank you. Nice speaking with you. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye. So we appreciate the caller um, bringing up her thoughts on uh, the book and and different things related to those issues and these aren't simple answers things like uh you know who should be allowed to take something or not should we make it completely legal or should we make it difficult to obtain these are not easy to answer another thing i will mention looking at this from another side sometimes people say well if something is from nature if it's from plant then it has to be okay and I definitely don't agree with that either. There's something called the naturalistic fallacy when we do that, that if something's natural, it's okay. Uh, so um, first of all, almost anything in excess is going to be unhealthy. And also th- some things that are made from 
nature are poisonous to us. They will kill you, even in small amounts. So there are some mushrooms, and mushrooms are getting a lot of attention now that they can have some very healing properties and can be very helpful for us humans, and that's great, and I hope we continue to see what the benefits can be. But at the same time, there are some mushrooms you can take that can kill you in a small amount. So it's another area where we have to be careful not to say, because I hear people say, well, this is from nature. It's a plant. How could it be bad for us? And it's like, that, that doesn't make any sense. Yes, the earth gives us everything we need to survive. And we can you know, definitely utilize that. And so many plants and things in nature are amazing and wonderful. But it doesn't mean just because it's coming from the earth, it, it's not harmful. First of all, even at all or in whatever dose. So we have to be careful about those arguments as well, which I've heard about things like, let's say, marijuana, which um, I do think had much worse of a reputation for most of my life than it actually deserves. But it doesn't mean, on the other hand, that just because it's a plant, it can't be bad for you no matter what or at any time or no matter how much of it you have. So we have to be conscious of those arguments. And I think this is the hard part about dealing with things in general is we'd like to have easy, fast, and quick rules that we can apply to these things when most things are much more complicated. We like to think we know, oh, I know what's a drug and what's not a drug. Well, please explain it to me because I think it's much more blurry than you think. I know what should be illegal or not legal, or I know how to make it so we don't get addicted to things. These things are very, very complicated and if someone thinks it's so easy it probably means they're not looking at the full complexity of the issue anything from the outside can seem simple addiction is actually a very clear one. Oh, just stop taking the substance well it's much much more complicated than that what you're saying is easy for you uh, probably there's something that's not easy for you that someone else can look at in the same way and this is why we want to have that understanding that at times, we might think something looks easy because we're not experiencing it, but we don't know what something is like until we experience it. Now, after the break, I actually want to talk about a documentary I saw last night called Roadrunner on the life of Anthony Bourdain, which sadly does include addiction as well. Um, but it, it was really a powerful documentary. I'd recommend it. Again, it's called Roadrunner, um, looking at his life and showing lots of footage of his life and interviewing people that knew him and worked with him and, and were close with him. Um, so let me get into that after the break, but also still taking calls on the show. 310-441-0555. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. So as I mentioned before the break, uh, last night I saw the documentary called Roadrunner, which was about the life of Anthony Bourdain. I'm sure many of you are familiar with Anthony Bourdain. He wrote a book called Kitchen Confidential. He was a chef, but also got very well known for his uh, show, I think it was called Parts Unknown, which was on CNN, where he essentially would travel the world and try different foods, but also meet the people in those areas. And so... It was obviously about food in some ways at the core, but also covered political issues, human issues, uh, and, and just giving us a glimpse into the lives of people that we maybe would never get to see or meet in lands that we maybe never even went to. And I know that many people admired him, liked him, loved him, and also envied him because they thought, what a great life. 
to get to travel the world and try delicious foods and, and make lots of money doing it as well. And so the documentary talks about or shows his life before he got well known when he was a chef and, and slowly looking at that journey and, and different aspects of his life. Now, um, I, I encourage you to see it. I thought it was entertaining, but also insightful, also heartbreaking, because as I'm sure most of you also know, he eventually took his own life and that's how he died. So we, we know that as we're watching the whole thing, you know that that's how he um, dies. And that was in 2018. Um, but we also see what he was going through or what he went through mentally, emotionally, psychologically. Uh, and I think that was quite interesting as well. We can't, I can't say what he really was going through. And that's actually one of the points I want to make. Because I remember one of the things that many people were saying is that they were shocked. That of course they were heartbroken that he took his life. But that someone who seemed to have the life everyone wanted, traveling the world, having lots of money and fame, that he could be depressed or feel down enough to take his own life. That was something that puzzled many people. And for me, it's a reminder that we never know, first of all, what it's like to be in a certain experience that we haven't had, but also we never know what someone is feeling or what they are going through. Because we see people in our lives, we see people on TV and movies, we see people now on social media, and we think we know. You know, we look at a couple like, oh, look how happy they are. I wish that was me. Look at that smiling picture they have in front of the Eiffel Tower. They must be so happy. And the picture looks nice, but it doesn't mean the experience is nice or that what they are experiencing is nice. And we have to remember that as much as we think we know, we'd like to think we know what I would feel if I was in that position and also what that person is feeling, we don't. And even if they're smiling, it doesn't necessarily mean they are happy. And so this also brings up this notion that we tend to think we have to look happy or we feel a pressure to look like we are doing okay because that's what people want. We want to be seen that way. That's what's going to make people like us and love us and get us attention. And so often we try to pretend like we are okay even if we're not i remember seeing this image with robin williams on it now i'm not sure if it was his quote you know online people post all sorts of things or they put an image or they even attribute a quote to someone um, but i'm trying to find that quote now uh, but it's basically about depression and how oftentimes people think well what if someone is faking it uh, here it is it says people don't fake depression they fake being okay People don't fake depression, they fake being okay. Remember that, be kind. And so, although we might think people are exaggerating or they're playing victim and people can do that, but more often than not, people pretend like they're okay when they are not, rather than people are pretending to be down. And so for me, that was a big theme that I felt throughout the movie. Now, one thing we also have to be wary of is when we know how something ends, 
we might see things very differently than we might have if when we were actually experiencing it. So in watching it, I even caught myself many times saying, oh, see, you can see an anger there or, you know, you can see this part of him that maybe was unhappy, which does seem to be true. Uh, but to think that you might have caught it in that same way, not knowing is also something to be aware of. Um, often after there's something like a tragedy, like a mass shooting, let's say, they'll go back and look in social media or things the person said, like, oh my gosh, how do we not know they were going to do this? And we do have to be better about that. Sometimes there are some warning signs, but sometimes the warning signs are not that clear. They're just much more clear in hindsight, something that we want to be aware of. Um, that if you're looking at something and you think, I would have known if I was there, it's hard to know what you don't know, or it's hard to experience what it's like to not know what you know, the curse of knowledge as it's known. Once I know something, it's hard for me to look at Anthony Bourdain's life, for example, without this looming uh, knowledge that he took his own life. So I might even see him happy or I might see him too. I'm like, oh, he, you know, he's, he's smiling there, but maybe he was depressed then. And he could have been, as I was just saying, we don't know what people are feeling, even if we think we do, but it might not be true. And it might be just that I'm seeing everything through this lens of knowing what happened afterwards. So yes, when we see someone, we might think that's the life I want, but we don't know what it's like to live that life. And so when we look at our own lives, rather than trying to be someone else, we should try to live the life that will make us feel good. And so what does that mean? As I mentioned, he was very rich and famous by the, later in his life, but we know this doesn't make people happy. This doesn't make people feel good in, in the long run. One of the things that does make us happy are our relationships and the quality of those relationships. And you see in his life, there was a lot of ups and downs. Um, he seemed to do everything at 100 miles an hour. Everything was very intense. When he would uh, get interested in someone, he would be so into that or when he would get interested in some, you know, thing, whether it was cooking or I forgot if it was jujitsu, he did some kind of martial arts, he would be in it 100%. And so there was some extremes and black and whiteness and how he did things, which I'm sure in some ways led to his success because he was able to be so committed to something and so dedicated, but it also made it, it seem that there was an instability within him. There wasn't a sense of inner peace from what I was seeing from him. Again, knowing how he, his life went might color the way I saw him, but nonetheless, there did seem to be a lacking, um, of that inner peace or even the way he looked at so many things there was what felt to me like a dissociation um, and an avoidance of reality seeing things like as if in a movie even his relationships um, even himself as a father as he became a father he would say he was happiest when he would just be barbecuing in the backyard kind of like a tv dad and so i think there was something sweet about that of just him being with his family, being with his daughter and, and doing like a very stereotypical dad type of a thing. But it also did ring a bit of this sense of not being connected to his own experience and, and even just not wanting to be where he was because there's something within him. Again, this sense of either a lack of inner peace, clearly this lack of enough self-love which is heartbreaking to see in so many individuals, but especially individuals who can 
turn to addiction or who can experience uh, depressions and different things, they can often feel that they are not loved or they're not lovable. And that's something I did feel with him as well, that even he, I think, saw himself as a character. Now we all can wear a mask in how we present ourselves to society, or we can say everyone does. It's just how thick or how much we are masking or how much we become something or someone else. And for him, I felt like this type of analogy of seeing the world as a movie, it was almost like he was himself a character as well. And so when that happens, if you do get all this love and attention for this character, and and I don't say this to mean that he was phony or not genuine, but that he would maybe exaggerate some of it or that he wasn't even conscious of what he was doing. It probably felt like he had to be this way. Again, these are a lot of my own interpretations based on um, what I just observed, but because it makes me think of things that we all go through, I'm sharing them today. So I can't say I know this for a fact about him at all. But it, it seemed almost that he felt that being loved by others, it wasn't that they were actually loving him. At some level, it might have been this persona or character. And this is something many famous people experience, that, well, people love me, but I'm being this whatever it is, this character, this singer, this actor, uh, coming off a certain way. I don't genuinely feel loved, so it doesn't actually make up for that lack of being loved and accepted. If I act like I think you want me to be and now you love me, well, at least I get that approval in the moment or it feels nice, but deep down I'll still think you don't love the real me. If you actually saw who I was, you wouldn't love that. You you wouldn't be okay with that. So I wonder if that was some of what he might have experienced too, that this love and attention he was getting didn't really fit into that hole of self-love and feeling lovable because of this. It just seemed like it just wouldn't be there. Uh, another thing he you see in his story, which you see in so many people, is that although he was rich and famous, he was unhappy. And so unfortunately, when we as a society think that we know what's going to make us happy, but we're wrong, it creates a lot of problems. So to begin with, most people think I want to be rich and famous. And most people obviously are not. And so when they're not, they feel like they failed. So, of course, that makes them feel really bad. I didn't make it or I'm not good enough. They compare themselves to so many other people and they don't feel good. Now, on the other hand, some people do become rich and famous or rich or famous, and they might still not be happy because that's not the thing that's going to make them happy. But because we think this is what should make me feel good, if you don't, now you have this feeling that how bad am I that even though I'm having the best thing, what everyone wants, what I thought I always wanted, I'm still not happy. That makes me even worse than I thought before I had this, because look how unhappy I am. What the heck else could I want in life? I'm rich, I'm famous, I have everything I could want, I go anywhere, people love me, they give me all this attention, and I still feel miserable. But it's because that recipe to being happy is the problem. It's not going to make you happy. So when we get there and we don't feel good, that makes us feel even worse than maybe even not having it at all. But realizing that what's going to make us happy is having those relationships, doing something in our life that feels meaningful, purposeful, that makes us feel good about ourselves. 
that we don't get happy because of the opinions of other people, that's not going to lead to our happiness. If we focus on those things, then we might become rich or famous or a bunch of other things, but that's more likely to make us feel good. Living a life driven by those, by values, by purpose, that's what's more likely to lead to this good feeling that we're looking for, which to me isn't even happiness and this feeling good all the time, but more a sense of contentment with our life, feeling good about our life and also what we've done with it. What have I done with my time on this earth so far? I feel good about that when I look back. I don't have many regrets. Most of our regrets, sadly, are not about things that we did, but things we haven't done. But if we have a life where we don't feel those regrets, that then leads to the sense of well-being, of contentment, which to me is actually what we should focus our life on rather than just this happiness of feeling good in the moment, which unfortunately is what most, most of us are seeking. And so, as I mentioned, the, the documentary was heartbreaking because you know how it's going to end and, and you see how it affected those who were close to him, his loved ones, that they're crying. Some of them even, um, one of them in particular said, I don't talk about that, not wanting to talk about the suicide and what happened. And um, they were just so torn up about it. And that was very heartbreaking. And even some of them sharing that they wish they did more. And, and these things are tough because we obviously don't want to blame and we don't know what would have happened or what they could have done. But I also don't like thinking of suicide as something inevitable. Sometimes we have that mindset that no matter what anybody did or what they did, it was going to happen. And I don't think that's true. I don't think it's easy to think we're just going to prevent all suicides and get to zero uh, very quickly. But I do think that many suicides are preventable. And one of the things that helps make them uh, prevented is if we aren't afraid to talk about it, which is why I don't... Um, mind or I not even just don't mind I'd like to use the word to make it more uh, make it less of a taboo I appreciate uh, Katane Vahdani on Monday night's show she shared her own experiences uh, of being suicidal and what that was like and people sharing their stories makes it so it's easier for others to share it when it's not in their past but it's in their present and might make it easier for them to ask for help to reach out to others to see what they can do um, but it's also a reminder to us that we have to be willing and okay to ask how someone is doing. First of all, as I said, we don't know how they're doing. You see them having fun. Oh, they're so successful or they're so this or that or whatever it might be. But we really don't know what they are going through. Anthony Bourdain, I think, was actually shooting. They were showing uh, parts of the show and during that period. So he was doing what it seemed like he loved and he you know, made him happy or we thought made him happy. Uh, but we really don't know. So don't be afraid to ask someone how they're doing, not just in the, hey, how are you doing that we say when we start a conversation, but a genuine trying to get deeper with them and make sure they are okay. And when I talk about suicide, I always say, if you ask someone if they're thinking of suicide or that's on their mind, um, it's either a yes or no, at least what they're going through. If it's a no, um, they might, maybe they'll even laugh or be surprised that you thought they were in that state of mind when they weren't. But the really good part is, even if it is a no, now they do know that if they ever are feeling that way, they could come talk to you, that that bridge is there. You can handle that conversation. And that is very, very valuable. And of course, if the answer is yes, you might be quite literally saving someone's life. So 
the notion that it's inevitable, that we can't do anything. Sometimes it does get to that point where maybe there is no turning back. Even still, I would say that's very rare and almost always something can be done. But very often if someone did say something, it could have changed something. So it's not to say the people in Anthony Bourdain's life, we know they could have saved him or I know this person or that person could have. We don't know. But it's a reminder to all of us that we should be bold when it comes to being supportive and loving of our friends and loved ones. And we should not be afraid to ask the questions that might be uncomfortable, but might quite literally save a life. That brings us to our next commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in this segment, I wanted to talk about a psychological concept or construct, which uh, there probably is labels or names for it, but the way I'll talk about it is being self versus other focused. So uh, especially if in one interaction, but just overall, how much am I focused on myself, my experience, my feelings, my wants and needs, and how much am I focused on others' feelings, wants and needs? And like many psychological concepts and constructs, it's on a spectrum. So we can say one end would be completely self-focused and the other end would be completely other-focused. As I'm saying, I know I talked about the concept of self as being an illusion earlier on the show or that it can be. So I'll try to keep that in mind. But still, I think there's something about our experiences psychologically. Um, And even actually, this might be part of why it's a spectrum is that it's not one thing to think about yourself and others it could be just a different type of a dimension but nonetheless if we just try to look at this um, framework from self-focused to other focus it's a spectrum so again there's that part of it that's like other uh, traits that we might talk about but another thing is that there's not one healthy way of doing it to begin with it's not that you should be either self or other focused more than likely the healthier dimension is going to be somewhere in the middle, but also that it involves flexibility because different situations, different relationships, different contexts will likely ask or we could see that there will be different pros and cons to being more self and other focused. So um, although we might even look at this as a personality trait because some people tend to be more self versus other focused and fall somewhere on that spectrum, no one is going to be just one all of the time. It's kind of like when we talk about communication styles and we say there's passive and then there's aggressive at the other end and the more healthy is assertive. And you might say, what's your communication style? It doesn't mean you only operate in one of those three realms or dimensions. You probably do things in in different ones. Also, assertive is the most healthy, but at times it might be better to be passive or aggressive depending on the situation. It might call for you to be differently. Similarly, this self versus other focused is something that it's not just this is the way you should be and this is how you always should be. It has to be looked at on a case by case and relationship by relationship basis. So what do these things look like? So if you're self-focused, that means when you go through your day, when you go through your interactions, when you're just living your life, you are much more connected, focused, and preoccupied with your own feelings, your own thoughts, your own wants and needs. So something is happening, like, oh, I want this. Uh, 
and you'll have little or no regard, depending on where you are on the spectrum, to how it might impact others. So that depends on what you're doing. Even as a member of society, we have an impact on others. So this is not just about relationships as in husband and wife or family members or close friends. Even how we are in society, we can have an impact on others. Let's say how loud you're listening to your music as you go by other people, uh, being on your phone when you're around other people. If you're very self-focused, then you probably won't mind talking loudly on the phone next to people. Um, if you're very, very other focused, you might feel very self-conscious about that. And again, it doesn't mean you should never be on your phone in public, but there are degrees where you might recognize that you are more on one end of the spectrum or the other. So if you're very self-focused, then also in your relationships, you have an interaction and you're only focused on your own feelings. So again, I'm talking about in the extreme. You're not worried or thinking, how is what I'm saying going to be heard by the other person? How might they feel about what I'm doing, what I'm saying? Or even if they seem hurt, you might not care that much about what's going on with them because you want to make sure you're okay or there's something you are using you're like okay I'm using it but you're not aware of how it might affect other people so then on the other end of the spectrum is other uh, focus which means that when you're interacting you are almost completely detached from your own experience and you're only thinking about how others might be impacted. Oh, they might not like this or, oh, it's, is this too loud or am I going to make too much of an impact? You're having a conversation and we could say one dynamic or one element of this would be a very much a people pleaser, right? So you're only thinking, is the other person liking what I do or don't do what I say, how I approach them, um, everything that I'm doing, is that pleasant to them? is what you're looking at. And unfortunately here, there's a complete detachment from your own wants and needs and experiences and what you're feeling. So do you like what's going on? Do you want things to be this way? You might actually be detached from it or you might just try to suppress or put away those feelings to make sure the other person is okay. And so what, the way I sometimes use this analogy, so if you look at the, the self-focused, they have a hard time putting themselves in other people's shoes. So they're kind of just thinking about their own experience. But they're not thinking about, okay, well, yeah, they might, maybe they don't like this or that bothered them because you're like, this is what I wanted. But if you're so other focused and extreme, your problem might not be that you can't put yourselves in other people's shoes. Your problem is you can't put yourself in your own shoes. You have a hard time feeling and valuing what you're going through. You're too much in other people's shoes and you're almost exclusively in other people's shoes. Oh, they probably didn't like that. Oh, maybe she didn't like this. He might not like it if I did that. Oh, I have to make sure they're okay. And you might neglect what you are going through, which is actually not healthy either. So usually the extremes are going to be unhealthy. Now, as I said, I'll just add a little bit of a caveat here about the relationships do matter. Because if you have a 50-50 relationship, you want it to be somewhere in between where you are self-focused where you're aware of your wants and needs and express them and actually assertiveness does come up here where i'm going to express from my side in a even loving respectful way but i'm going to share my feelings my wants my needs even my opinions if they might contradict yours 
but I also do have an awareness of how it's going to impact you. So I, I will be mindful of even the words I might use that might be more harmful to you. I'm not going to stifle myself completely and not share my ideas, but I will be aware of what I'm saying and how it impacts you and, and what's going on and how I treat you and, and what's happening there. But if we look at, for example, a parent-child relationship, then as the parent, you have to be almost exclusively other focused, especially if you're, let's say, dealing with a baby. You can't be thinking about, well, I want this or I want it to go this way. Yeah, you make sure you're okay. You're not going to, let's say, if you're sitting in a position and your arm is falling asleep and it's becoming so painful, it doesn't mean you don't care or pay attention at all. But we know that the um, the dynamic is going to be much more skewed towards being other focused on the baby. Is the baby okay? Without um, thinking that the baby is going to be thinking about you, they really can't. And what you're going through, you're just focused on making sure they are okay and what they're going through feels good to them. So that relationship should be completely other focused. But in general, when we have more equal relationships, we want it to be more balanced. And so it's something to ask yourself, where do I think I am on this spectrum? Do I tend to be, and as I said, it doesn't mean you're black and white always this way. So don't just say, oh, I, I did this yesterday or that happened. Really try to look at the pattern of your relationships, of your experiences. And you might have to even have to ask other people we sometimes lack insight into ourselves, and you might think, let's say you're very other focused, but then the people around you, if you ask them, might make you see, oh, you know what, actually, I don't feel like you are because, um, you know, you weren't very considerate. So consideration or being considerate would be one aspect of this dynamic. If you're not very considerate, that is more self-focused. If you're very considerate, it could be other focused. You might even be too considerate where you're thinking too much about them. But so people might tell you you're not very considerate or people might tell you, yet yeah, it's almost like you're apologetic about what you want or what you need, or we don't even know. So you might be too other focused and people tend not to like either one of those extremes. If you are extremely self-focused, we might think that's obvious. Well, people won't like that because you could come off selfish. You might not be aware of how what you're doing affects the people around you. You might come off as not caring about how it affects them. You might want to make things always be your way, what makes you comfortable, what's your preference. And so people who are in relationships with you might be frustrated in that way. Now, we might think other focus seems like a great thing and people would want to be in relationship with you. So on one hand, it is it could be nice that people please your side, making sure that people around you feel okay, uh, being very agreeable, being very considerate. Those types of things might seem like very good things and they can be. But when it's in that extreme and you're not expressing what you want or what you need or what you're going through, first of all, people relating to you will likely feel like something is missing because there won't be something to connect to. You're in some ways a shell of a real person. It's just always okay, always feeling good, whatever you want is fine, I have no opinion, I have no preference. And so because of that, it's like a ghost or a shell of a person and there's not a lot to connect to. Also, people know that what you're saying of always being okay is not true. So now they have to doubt or not be sure of what you're feeling. So if you tell me you're always okay with whatever I suggest, I can't really know if you are. And now I have to actually do some extra steps of really thinking, okay, you know, here she told me they're okay, but they always say they're okay. So 
maybe they don't like this. So, you know what, I won't even do this thing because maybe they don't like it, but they're afraid to tell me. So if I think you're afraid or uncomfortable or don't want to tell me what you're feeling or what you want, I actually might even compensate. And also this will have to do with how self or other focused I am. So it's these are where these things start to interact with each other or different characteristics and personality traits. But I might, if I am a little bit self-focused or a little bit other focused, I mean, I might actually not do something that you might be okay with, but because I'm not sure it's not clear what you want or don't want, what you like or don't like. Also, when you tend to make it all about other people, you might initially be very good with this dynamic, comfortable with it, might even create it, but you tend to feel a resentment towards others because your needs are not getting met. Now, it's not the other people's faults because you're not telling them what your needs are, but you tend to blame them. Gosh, they keep doing the things I don't like. It's always about them. It's always what they want. But we have to recognize and take that responsibility that I might be creating this dynamic in my relationships, which you probably, if you unpack and look at your own childhood and see where it might come from, were you the person that tried to make everything okay? Were your parents more self-focused in a way that they weren't seeing your wants and needs and feelings? So you learned that to make things go smoothly, it's better for me not to have those things and to make it about the other person. And so also that anger you're having towards these new people might be the anger that you're holding on to towards your parents. But it's very important for us to recognize this in ourselves. Where am I comfortable and where do I tend to be when it comes to self or other focused in my relationships? And as is always the case, to change this does take effort and will be uncomfortable. Any type of change will be uncomfortable, especially something that can be deeply ingrained, like the way we approach our relationships and how much we focus on ourselves and others. Now, if you are very self-focused, you might not think anything is wrong, but let's say if you do come to the point where, like, you know, and many people are telling me this and I want to work on this. So many people who are self-focused feel very okay with how they are. And if that's the case, what you likely will have to do is really work on being more considerate, meaning that you will probably need help from others because what will happen is you're not even aware of the things you're not seeing. You probably won't even recognize that you're not checking in with others or making sure they are okay. So you might actually have to ask people, you know, in the things that I did today or this or that, did you feel like I wasn't taking your feelings, your thoughts, your needs into consideration? You're going to need someone to, in a way, start to be your eyes a little bit more that will slowly allow you to change your perspective because you might not even be aware of it. Now, maybe you're very self-focused, but you are aware and you might just not care. And if you want to change that, well, then you have to just put more effort and energy and recognizing if I want my relationships to be better, I, I have to care about what other people want as well. Uh, if I want it to be uh, more of an equal dynamic, then what I want should matter, but also what they want should matter too. And if you're someone who is very other focused, the challenge will be that when you become more self-focused, that self part will make you think selfish. That if I'm doing what I want, I'm asking for what I need, um, I'm making my thoughts known and trying to get it the way I want it to be, am I being very selfish? Because likely you learned somewhere, as I was saying, that having your own needs and wants is bad. 
and makes you bad and makes things not work out. So people tend to be very uncomfortable if they are in that very people-pleasery, other-focused mindset to make it about themselves sometimes. And you have to be ready for that, that it's going to feel uncomfortable, it's going to feel like you're being selfish, but it might actually be that you're shifting things to a more healthy dynamic where rather than it being just about the other person, it gets to be about you too. And because of that, if you're able to achieve that and be more comfortable with having the flexibility of being both self and other focused, having both things in mind, being able to go to both places, depending on the relationship and the context and the situation, you can feel much better individually and also have much better relationships as well. So as I said, something to think about myself, where do I stand? Maybe the people around you. And especially we can't wait for others to change. We can see if we can change ourselves to find more of a balance. If you find that you're in either one of those extremes of being very self-focused or very other focused. Let's go to our last commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the previous segment, I was talking about being self-focused on one end of the spectrum, other-focused on the other end. And at the end, I was talking about when you can be too self-focused, people actually will have a hard time being in a relationship with you, whether yourself or other on either extreme. And when you're very other-focused, you are likely to do something that I want to talk about in this last segment, which is avoid conflict. So you are so concerned about making sure the other person is okay that you are likely to avoid conflict, meaning that if they say something you don't like, you won't mention anything, you are likely to not say anything you think they don't like. If something's bothering you, you'll hold it in and hold on to it, all of which do not lead to healthier and happy relationships. When you avoid conflict, you are avoiding closeness. When you avoid conflict, you avoid closeness, meaning that the degree or the level of intimacy you can have with someone is going to be limited significantly if you avoid conflict. Now, what we're doing essentially when we avoid conflict is in the moment we're trying to or we think we are choosing peace over closeness. We might not even think of the closeness that might be there. But what we're being driven by is a sense of I want peace and calm in the moment. And so I'd rather have that than to risk it for any other reason. And that's what people are doing because conflict can feel very scary. So it could be important to do a type of conflict inventory or conflict audit. First, ask yourself, how comfortable do I think I am with conflict? When I look at myself and how likely am I, for example, to tell someone that something they did bothered me? How likely am I to share feelings that I think other people or opinions that I think other people don't like or won't like? And you you might also, again, benefit from, from asking people around you. Now, they don't know the things you're holding on to if you haven't said them, for example, uh, but they might give you an idea of how it feels. Yeah, it does seem like you don't want to tell me or you do. Now, some people might like conflict. I think it's good to be embracing of conflict when it arises, but some people might, because of anger, want conflict. So they want to actually attack or create a fight or go at people. That's definitely not healthy either. Uh, 
So that's just wanting to fight or hurt to put people down or to get out some anger, sometimes anger from someone else or from some other situation. That is not a healthy way of being okay with conflict. That's actually seeking it out or wanting it because of some other benefit, not actually for closeness. So that type of uh, relationship with conflict is not healthy either. What we want to try to have is non-conflict avoidance, meaning that I'm not going to avoid it when it's there. I'm not going to seek it out, but I'm also not going to not have the conversation, not create what might turn into an argument because I just want things to be calm. Now, uh, as I said, you want to do an audit, look at your own family. How did they deal with conflict? My experience with most people is that it isn't a good experience. Most people aren't good with conflict. And so what you often find is some families have just a lot of conflict, but also a tendency I've noticed, especially not a lot of Iranian families, is to either completely avoid conflict or have ugly arguments. And they actually are very related because the more I hold things in, because it's bad to have arguments, bad to have a fight, we shouldn't bring it up, we shouldn't, when I finally do, it probably means it's going to explode out of me and turn into something ugly and nasty. And so many people have this experience of conflicts from their um, family life or from their childhood, that it was something that didn't happen, you hold it in, and then it's something really, really ugly. So for most people, conflict is a uncomfortable thing. It's not something good because we don't think of it as it's going to make us closer. We think of it as it's going to be this really scary, ugly thing. And even for many people, even if they're not aware of the threat that they might be feeling, it's that I lose the relationship. And so many people might think, oh, no, I don't think the person's going away or like my husband or wife will divorce me if we have one fight. But they might not be aware of that threat that might be underneath that feeling that they're not in touch with that's driving them away from conflict because they're so afraid to lose the relationship. And so when we have that type of a calculation, is it worth sharing what I'm feeling right now or and might maybe possibly losing the relationship? We say, no, it's not worth it. Who cares? I can just like ignore it. But we have to realize that any relationship that can handle uh, one conversation is not a very good one or strong one and one we should preserve. And also that it more than likely is not the case that your conversation won't be able to be tolerated by your partner in this relationship. And that also if we have this conversation, we can maybe get closer. So my hope for everyone, including myself, because actually I think at times I've gone through my own journey of dealing with conflict and avoiding it and still probably avoid it more than I'd think is healthy and it's something I try to work on. Um, but what I hope for everyone, including myself, is that we wouldn't be afraid to embrace the conflicts when they might arise because this is what can lead to the ultimate closeness. It can lead to the resolution of issues when they are there before they become bigger. And it can also preserve many relationships. Um, it, it happens in I'm sure lots of cultures, but again, in our Persian culture, I'm sure every single one of you, if you are Iranian, maybe even if you're not, obviously, but you know of either yourself or someone close to you who has ended a relationship with a very close friend or family member because of one disagreement. You know, we all have these stories like yeah, 23 years ago, you know, her and her brother, they had this fight over this money that came and now they just don't talk. And so we... Don't, if we invite one of them, we don't invite the other. Uh, they don't talk or see each other, and that's it. And so unfortunately, what we've learned about conflict is that it is the end of relationships. 
that it is what leads to relationships disappearing. So we should just avoid the conflict rather than recognizing we have to look at conflict in a different way and see if we can actually resolve them. This is another reason when I talk to parents and they'll have a kid and they say, oh, you know, he got in a fight with this kid in his school, in his class, so we're switching his classes or we're switching his school. Or she got in a fight with the teacher, so we're going to take her out of the school or sue the school or take him out of the school or do something. And sometimes situations might require that. But very often what parents are teaching their kids is that when a conflict happens, when you don't like someone, you have to just get away from them or try to defeat them. You know, let's say sue them, put them down. But it's all about this adversarial mindset that conflict necessarily means me against you, winner, loser, end of relationship. And what I'd much rather parents do is that if your child had a fight with a kid in their school or they had a disagreement or something happened, first of all, one another thing that parents do with kids is they the parents try to resolve it. So I've seen so many people, they say, oh, yeah, you know, my son got in a fight with his friend. I called the friend's mom and we worked it out. I'm like, how do you work out the fight between two other people? Oh, no, we just told them to be friends and to make up. And now we're doing a play date next week. Well, that doesn't work. And first of all, it's not going to solve the problem, but also you're completely taking away an opportunity for your child to learn to resolve conflicts. Now, depending on their age and what's going on, they might need your support. Maybe even you might have to be there, but it would be better if you weren't to let the the two kids work it out on their own. But rather than recognizing this as an opportunity for growth, which often happens because we think the pain is bad, no matter what form it is, we take away the pain, we take away the growth, and our child is actually left worse off than they were if we let them face it themselves. So I would hope you say, you know what? My child and this kid had a fight. Doesn't mean that kid is a bad person. That's another place we go to. Oh, you, you got in a fight with my kid or the teacher said something to my kid. They're bad. That's not true most of the time. It's going to be that they just had a disagreement or some kind of conflict. And also actually that your child might have done something. So that's another thing that it's not that we want to blame our kid, but we don't want to make it seem like they couldn't have done something wrong in this interaction. Most interactions that go poorly, both individuals have contributed in some way to what has happened. So I'd hope you have more of a conversation and facing what happened, both in we're not just running away from it, but also we're not just going to blame it all on that other person. Let's try to understand what you did, what you think they felt. Of course, try to understand what you felt and what you didn't like about what happened and encourage them to go into the conflict rather than run away from it. And so hopefully they preserve that friendship. Very often, uh, many people have stories of, oh, I had this really bad fight with this kid when we were, or my friend now when we were kids, but actually we got closer after we resolved that fight. So they might have that interaction, but they will also learn that conflict is not something you need to run away from. That conflict is not a huge crisis and something that you should avoid at all costs. And as soon as it happens, it means the relationship is over. It just is one part of relationships. Any meaningful close relationship needs to include conflict, not because we like fighting, but because when you interact with someone over and over again, there's going to be things that come up where you disagree, where you see something differently, where someone does something or doesn't do something that hurts the other person. That's the only possible outcome when you interact with someone long enough. If you are being open, If you hide what you feel, well, then, yeah, you might avoid conflicts. But as I've said a few times now, you're going to be avoiding closeness because you're going to be 
taking away from the things you share with your partner. You're going to take away from the opportunities to resolve issues. And you're going to take away from your partner knowing who you are. Because in things that bother us, we teach our partner about who they are. You know, I'm actually kind of, those things offend me. Or I take this very seriously. Or I value this part of a relationship or these types of interactions. So we take away so much when we try to eliminate conflict. So we need to take a close look at ourselves and say, how do I look at conflict? How often do I avoid it? As I always say, almost every relationship has many unhad conversations that are having a negative impact on that relationship. There's something that's bothering the person about something that keeps happening or something that did happen before, but still they can't forget. And they might even be thinking about, should I tell my partner or shouldn't I? Ah, oh, no, it's, oh, you know, why should I? It's so long ago or it's not a big deal or I can deal with it. And there are times that we're going to deal with things on our own, but our radars for most of us, because most people tend to be conflict avoidant, is to think, ah, it's not a good time because it never feels good to have that kind of a conversation that could be awkward, that could lead to an argument, that maybe even gets to bad feelings. It doesn't feel good. It's bad feelings. They don't feel good. But growth almost always requires bad feelings. You want to get stronger, you got to push your muscles to the point where they hurt. You want to have a strong relationship, you got to push into the pain at times and have the conversations that don't feel good in the moment. So ask yourself how conflict avoidant or conflict non-avoidant am I? And of course, as I mentioned, there is the other extreme of seeking out conflict just as an expression of anger, as a way of putting people down, of being aggressive, of hurting them. And that definitely is not healthy either. So you can be on that extreme as well. So you want to look at that. But we want to ask ourselves, how much am I avoiding conflict or how much am I over going into conflict or am I more non-avoidant of it? And also looking at your relationships, because at times a culture gets developed. Maybe someone feels like they're not that conflict avoidant but because their partner is, they start to hold things in too. So a relationship has its own culture. And one of the aspects of that culture is going to be how easy is it for us to bring things up? How comfortable do we feel bringing up what might turn into an uncomfortable conversation? How likely are we to have a talk about something or to not have those talks and even having this kind of conversation requires some type of emotional intimacy but i hope you will at least first think about it and will have that conversation with your partner that we want to have the type of relationship where we don't hide and hold on to things where we actually do share what we are feeling and going through because we value that closeness we want to keep our relationship strong and going and we have to recognize that that peace in the moment, it's like an immediate gratification that we're seeking, but it doesn't lead to a lasting peace and strength in the relationship. It just is a moment to moment, okay, avoided crisis in this moment, and now I'm going to try to avoid it again later. You won't actually feel at peace in the long run. We're trading a short-term peace for a longer-term sense of inner peace and peace within the relationship. That brings us to the end of today's show. As always, a big thank you to Ghazala here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulaqui. Have a wonderful day.